Welcome back to True Crime Corner. I'm your host, Lisa Craven. This is episode two of the murder trial of Nikki Adiamondo. Be sure to listen to episode one first to get the background and what happened between the evening of the murder and the trial. Today we will discuss the trial, and as of the date I'm recording this, April 12th, the jury has come to their conclusion. The verdict will be revealed at the end of this episode. Until then, let's discuss the details of the trial. A small Dutchess County courtroom is packed to the maximum capacity, filled with family, friends, strangers, supporters, and members of the media. Among them are also the 12 jurors, which consist of eight women and four men. All are there to witness the testimony in trial of Nikki Adiamondo. Nikki, or she is formerly known as Nicole, is on trial for the shooting death of Christopher Grover, her boyfriend and father to her two children. Friends and family were shocked when the incident happened, describing the couple as happy and loving. Nikki, now 30 years old, was a stay-at-home mom who was devoted to her two young ones. Chris was 29 years old at the time of his death, and he was remembered for being a genuine guy, funny and charismatic, and loved his job at Mr. Todd's Gymnastics as their head coach. Nikki never denied that she shot and killed Chris, but claimed she had no choice and in order to defend her life, she had to do it. Over a year and a half later, the trial was finally set to start and the community was still very divided. Literally, supporters for Nikki gathered on one side while the supporters for Chris were on the other. Prosecutor Shauna Krauss described to the jury that they will be able to hear from the defendant herself as she recalls shooting Christopher and describes her demeanor in that police video as casual-like she was repeating a recipe or a shopping list. Krauss then leans in demonstrating the pose observed in the video. This was Nikki's state of mind. She casually and matter-of-factly recounted the evening with Chris to the police. The prosecutor continued to tell the jury that they may feel sympathetic towards Nikki at times, but that cannot get in their way of judging the facts. Chris's handgun that he purchased was legally registered and stored safely away from the children. That same weapon will ultimately take his life. She read a text message that Nikki sent to a friend in August of 2017, approximately one month before the murder. The text read, I haven't found a way to kill him without being caught, so I'm still here. That text was deleted, but forensic technicians were able to recover it. In the morning hours of September 27th, the day before the shooting, the couple received a surprise visit from Child Protective Services. CPS stated an anonymous complaint had been filed about bruises on Nikki and because the couple had two small children that lived in the home, an investigation was being launched. Prosecutor Krauss claims that this very investigation may have been the catalyst and what set Nikki off and made her decide she needed to murder Chris. Krauss describes Nikki as frantic about the recent CPS visit, and she was fearful that her house of cards would come tumbling down and her prior stories of abuse would be investigated and the agency would get to the bottom of it, possibly resulting in her losing custody of her children. 
Nikki spent the day of the 27th calling the witnesses for CPS, instructing them to tell the agency that everything was fine and that she just bruised easily. Krauss concluded by stating the shooting was not an act of self-defense and that Chris was asleep on the couch. Nikki had nothing but a rehearsed story of abuse and bizarre narration of events that falls apart in the details and that everything she did was to avoid being caught. Forensic technicians were also able to recover deleted searches on Chris's phone that prosecutors claim is the roadmap to how Nikki shot Chris. The searches that were recovered from Chris's phone were from the night of the shooting and included terms for what would happen if someone was asleep and someone shot them in the head. Will they wake up and die or die instantly? Where do you have to get shot in the head to die instantly? Part of the brain to shoot in a suicide. How do they determine if a person was asleep when shot? Will police know if she was asleep when I shot her? These searches were done from Chris's phone, but later deleted. The defense argues that there is no way to prove that Nikki made these searches and point out the final search was in reference to a female when the words she and her were used in the search. Will police know if she was asleep when I shot her? Prosecutors counter that yes, there's no way to prove who made those searches, but because the search engines are familiar with terms frequently used by the device and suggested that maybe it auto-corrected or auto-filled in the feminine pronouns. Nikki did know Chris's passcode to his phone, so gaining access to it wasn't impossible. Police recovered a laptop from the couple's apartment that was submerged in the bathtub. Prosecutors stated that Nikki referred police to search that laptop because she claimed that's where evidence of her abuse was documented. Despite the water damage, forensics were able to recover the data from the laptop and Krauss says it recovered no such evidence. Further details from the couple's phone revealed text exchanges and where Nikki appears to be the abuser, at least in a mental way, when she calls him a man-child and says he has a mental disorder and needed to do more around the house. The exchanges appear to show that Nikki wore the pants in the relationship, even calling Chris stupid. His responses weren't aggressive nor threatening. He said in one reply, Maybe you'll be happier if I go, if I make you so unhappy. In another text exchange to a friend, Nikki states that she needs to get back on birth control because Chris was trying to get her pregnant again, and she didn't want something else tying him to her. When defense attorney John Ingracia took the floor for his opening argument, he painted an entirely different picture of Nikki and Chris. His version was of a woman trapped in a relationship riddled with extreme and sexual violence. The abuse began shortly after the birth of their first child. Ingracia went into detail of a time when Nikki was pregnant with her second child and Chris decided to show her what respect was about. He alleged that Chris burned her on various parts of her body, including her vagina, with a metal spoon that was heated from the stove. The defense stated that on the night of the murder, Chris returned home from work and didn't say a word. He sat quietly on the couch, apparently upset at Nikki for the CPS investigation, and instructed her to take care of it by telling her to call everyone on the list and tell them that they're fine. He then showed Nikki how to load his gun. Forensic evidence recovered from the gun shows only Chris's DNA on the slide. 
the part used to load the bullets into the gun. This is when Chris also gave Nikki the warning that he was going to kill her and then himself if she ever left, leaving her children with no one. Then they had sex, but it wasn't the usual violent sex. Afterwards, the couple laid together on the couch and watched TV. Nikki was waiting for Chris to fall asleep so she could leave. But when she went to get up, he suddenly awoke and pulled the gun from in between the couch cushions. In her recollection of that evening to police, which was recorded, she said she didn't know he had the gun in the couch and he pulled her back down. So she jumped up and kneed him a little bit. This causes him to drop the gun. She grabbed it and held it to his head. She alleges that Chris said, you won't do it. You won't. And she stood there for a second. Chris told her to give him the gun and he was going to kill the both of them. This is when she lunged at him and pulled the trigger while the gun was pressed firmly against the side of Chris's head close enough to burn the skin. His body was discovered by police on the couch. The position he was in was on his back with his head propped up on some pillows, feet stretched out before him, one hand resting on his torso and the other laying along his side. The blood had seeped through the cushions of the couch collecting in the dark pool on the hardwood floors below. A gunshot wound is also visible on his temple. This is known as a hard contact wound and is caused when the muzzle of the gun is come into contact with the skin at the time it was fired. It is so hot that it causes the wound to sear at the edges. Sometime after the shooting, Nikki gathered her small children, fastened them in their car seats, and left the apartment in the couple's car. She was at an intersection when the light turned green. She didn't move. The car behind her was a town of Poughkeepsie police officer who was on his way to another call. It was well after two in the morning and Officer Sicily blew his air horn, which prompted Nikki to get out of her car. She walked towards the officer as he exited his vehicle and approached her. The entire encounter is captured on police dash cam but the audio is very difficult to hear due to the sound of passing cars and the rumbling from the car's engine. Nikki is not wearing any shoes in the video. During her two-hour exchange with the officer, she said she was involved in a domestic incident with her husband and the gun just went off. When police discovered Chris's body, his eyes were open. This was something that the prosecution wanted to know more about. Was this an indication that Chris was awake when he was shot? This answer wasn't easy to determine as one would hope. Forensic experts testified that there is nothing in the literature that states whether you can tell if a person was sleeping or not based on their eyes being open or shut. One thing the autopsy finding was able to determine was that the position that Chris was found in on the couch where he was laying on his back with one arm along his side and the other resting on his torso and his head propped up on pillows was the same position he was in when he was shot. At some point after the shooting, Nikki told police that the gun had just gone off. A state police firearms expert testified that the Beretta handgun that Chris owned, the trigger had to be moved to the rear in order to fire. This would make a misfire highly unlikely unless someone had their finger on the trigger and applied significant force. Now the question becomes, was Chris asleep when Nikki shot him 
or was he awake and ready to commit a murder-suicide, leaving Nikki no choice but to defend her life? We're going to take a brief pause in the episode for an update from our sponsor. Marissa Hart, one of the owners of Mr. Todd's Gymnastics, where Chris was employed at as head coach up until the date of his death, was one of the first witnesses to take the stand. She recalled the day of the 27th when she received a text message from Chris saying he was going to be a little late that day because CPS was at his house. When he arrived at work just a few minutes late, she noticed that he was in a good mood, and when she asked about the visit, he said, you're never going to believe this. They were there for me. She said Chris was more than willing to cooperate, and he had nothing to hide. Being that he also worked with young children at the gym, mainly girls, Melissa was very aware of how Chris behaved at work and around them, and if there were any indications that he was violent or sexual with them, his employment would be terminated. The defense brings up the text that Nikki sent a friend stating she hadn't found a way to kill him, so she's still there, and states it was a joke, and they further prove it by showing the half-smile emoji that followed the message indicating the lightheartedness of the mood. Although the text was deleted, forensic computer experts were able to recover it, but because the emoji is saved in a different format, it was a hot debate about which emoji was used and how different carriers have different versions of the same one. The context of the message remains unclear as the two sides have such opposing views on it. One week after the trial began, the prosecution rested its case and gave the floor to the defense. The defendant herself took the stand and remained there for three days. Typically, the defense will not take the stand as they are not even required to prove a case. That responsibility is up to the prosecution to prove that the defendant is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. In a trial such as this, where Nikki is stating an affirmative defense, that is where she is not denying that she shot Chris, but claiming she had to because this was a matter of life or death, Taking the stand is her only way to explain why she did what she did. The following is a recap of the testimony from Nikki herself. Chris was a great father and coach, but he was very different behind closed doors, she testified. The same things everyone in this courtroom misses about him, I fell in love with. She hoped he would change back into the man she fell in love with, and that is why she stayed. She explained how on the evening of the shooting, Chris got home from work and she told him to just let her and the kids leave. This is when Chris went and got his gun and began to load it, telling Nikki that he would kill her in her sleep. She recalls stories in detail to the jury of the horrific abuse she suffered over the years at the hands of Chris. There was a time when he tried to choke her with a belt of a bathrobe. Multiple times where Chris would tie her up in sexual fantasies and have violent sex with her, laughing and watching her struggle to free herself from the restraints. She shook visibly and cried as she told the jury in packed courtroom the horrifying stories. Nikki said that when Chris was upset or felt disrespected that he would lash out and he would take it out on her and she was terrified to report him to the police. The sexual abuse began once their son was just weeks old. She states that this is when the forced sex began because Chris claimed she was a great mom, but he had needs too. 
The jury was then shown pictures of Nikki with burn marks, bruising, a bite mark, and some sexually explicit images that Nikki said Chris took of her and uploaded to pornographic websites without her permission. The abuse she suffered was being bit. She alleges he stepped on her face on one occasion and he choked her in a headlock multiple times. Once their second child was born, Chris began to watch more and more porn. He was trying to recreate what he watched. He would bind her and tie her up and leave her that way for hours. Nikki said her only defense was her words. That was all she had. Chris would constantly tell her that he was going to take the kids away from her. She said she told people for years when they asked about her bruising that she was just clumsy and bruised easily. The CPS visit worried Nikki, but not for the reasons the prosecution claims. Nikki stated that she was worried because the abuse would escalate now that the agency was involved. She drove around for hours that day debating how she was going to leave him. When Chris returned home that evening, he didn't seem too upset, so Nikki decided she was going to stay. When asked about the content of the text she sent about not finding a way to kill him yet, her response was, it was sent in jest and was followed by an emoji that she used often. She said that the conversations that followed to her friend were all good things that listed why she should stay and she couldn't leave. The night of the shooting, she said the two were arguing, so she went into the kids' room and turned on the noise machine because she thought Chris was going to kill her and didn't want the sounds to wake the children. Sometime later, the couple had made up and had sex, but not the typical violent sex. Then they laid down on the couch and she waited for Chris to fall asleep so she could quietly leave. He fell asleep with his arms wrapped tightly around her. She didn't expect him to be awake, but when she got up, he suddenly awoke and grabbed the gun from between the cushions. She didn't know it was there and he grabbed her. She kneed him between the legs, which caused him to drop the gun. She then said she dove over the couch and grabbed a gun, beating Chris to it. She said that he laughed at her and said, you won't do it, you won't. Nikki says that's when she lunged at him and the gun made contact with his head. On cross-examination, the prosecution asked Nikki on the night when Chris was threatening to kill them both, did she call or text anyone for help? Nikki's response was no. Defense witnesses included a midwife who provided care for Nikki after her second child was born and friends. Testimony heard by the midwife that tended to Nikki during her pregnancy with her youngest child revealed that over the course of the pregnancy and up to three visits a year, including one as recent as 2017, Nikki had bruises and wounds on various parts of her body. The wounds included vaginal and rectal injuries along with swelling and bleeding. Nikki wanted the midwife to document the injuries because maintaining the custody of her children was a primary concern and she was afraid no one would believe her or think the wounds were self-inflicted or just a result of consensual sex. In a disposition that the midwife gave to the prosecution, she stated the following, quote, I think they're both sick. I think they both probably mutually abuse each other, end quote. When asked to clarify by the defense what she meant by mutually, she stated that, quote, I felt that a woman who stayed with someone who abused her in such a way 
gave him the message that it was okay to keep doing it, end quote. In an exam she conducted with Nikki in August of 2017, just one month before the murder, the midwife testified that Nikki's face was battered and she wasn't trying to hide it. During that visit, she took photos of bruises on her wrist, back, legs, and buttocks, but at the request of Nikki, she did not document her face, which also had visible injuries. Concerned, she contacted Nikki's then-therapist to discuss the situation and how Nikki was worried that the injuries would come off as self-inflicted or from consensual sex play. A friend and music instructor also took the stand to testify that she also saw Nikki regularly between 2015 and 2016, and she had bruising on her face and wore long pants and scarves in the summer. She also said that Nikki would tell her that Chris said no one would believe her if she tried to tell anyone that he abused her and that he would get the kids. The next witness for the defense was a forensic psychologist, Dawn Hughes, that examined Nikki. She testified that she believed Nikki suffered severe intimate partner violence during her relationship with Chris. She reached this conclusion after spending 16 hours interviewing Nikki and giving her 10 different psychological tests. The defense argues that all of the information in the interviews and testing, along with any photographs, was all given by the defendant herself. No one else supported or witnessed these allegations except Nikki. None of the medical personnel had first-hand knowledge of abuse, and the six people that were interviewed by Hughes never saw Chris physically or sexually abuse Nikki. They had not even seen him yell at her. Those six people were two of Nikki's counselors, her sister, the midwife who provided care for her second pregnancy and testified, a friend, and a retired police officer who Nikki had a sexual affair with while she was with Chris. Hughes said that based on all of the factors she reviewed, she could come to the conclusion that she truly believed he was going to kill her that night. Not, however, conduct any interviews with Chris's friends or the couple's mutual friends. Prosecutors reminded the jury that Hughes's opinions and findings were objective. Hughes spoke to the jury about what intimate partner violence is and the behaviors that accompany it, such as the patterns of abuse, myths about domestic violence, and what the impact can be on the victims of abuse. She goes through the various coping strategies that one will go through and said that some will fight back, either physically or emotionally, with their words. Some abusive partners can be very jealous while others are not. Victims come up with different strategies, and there are countless reasons why they don't leave abusive relationships, but they vary by situation greatly. That the most dangerous time for a woman in an abusive relationship is when she's trying to leave it. Hughes also testified about her professional opinions and the credibility of Nikki's claims of abuse. Chris wasn't the first man she accused of beating her. In 2011, while living in an apartment complex with her mother, Nikki alleges that the maintenance worker at the complex sexually assaulted her. Then, in 2012, while Nikki was dating Chris, she moved in with a now-retired Poughkeepsie police officer, his wife, and their two children. The motive for moving in with the couple was the officer was concerned about bruises he saw on Nikki and opened up his home for her as a safe haven and refuge away from the alleged abuse she was suffering at the hands of Chris. Shortly after moving in with the couple, Nikki and the officer began to have a sexual affair. 
Chris was not aware of this affair, but he did know that she was residing in the couple's marital home. Sometime later in 2012, Nikki went to the police station and reported the officer for sexually abusing her. On cross-examination, the prosecution team asked Hughes what she felt about the way Nikki spoke with officers on the evening of the shooting. Nikki testified in court just days before that on the night of the shooting, Chris was telling her various ways in which he would kill her and shoot her in her sleep. But she failed to mention that to the police in either of her encounters that evening, one being a two-hour roadside conversation and the other while she was detained at the station. Prosecutor Kraus asked Hughes, wouldn't you think mentioning that he threatened to kill you throughout that night be a big detail that she would want to have not left out? In Hughes's professional opinion, she wouldn't expect a person in Nikki's position to be able to recount every detail of that night at that time, and said that the most significant detail was the shooting itself and Chris's death. Despite objections to the credibility of the witness, the prosecution pointed out that she had been an expert on about 50 cases, and on such occasion, a New Jersey judge found that she gave an evasive answer when she was directly asked a key question about the defendant's state of mind in a kidnapping case. Judge McLaughlin allowed her testimony as an expert witness. When a friend of Nikki's took the stand, she recalled a night back in 2011 or 2012 when the defendant showed up at her house very scared and upset. Her clothes were ripped and she had visible scratches on her chest that were bleeding slightly. Nikki told her friend that she was attacked at a party when she went to pick up a friend. Chris was out of town that weekend. Her friend urged Nikki to call the police and report the incident, but Nikki said she didn't want to, but she also said she didn't want to go home where she lived with her mom at the apartment because a maintenance worker at the complex was also harassing her. The friend offered Nikki to stay the night, and she did. When she was asked about her friendship with the couple, she began to cry. She was a friend to both of them and also worked at Mr. Todd's Gymnastics when both of them were employed. Her version of the relationship was that of a normal couple, and she felt that the two got along just fine during Nikki's pregnancy with their son because they were all three working at the gym together. Marissa Hart, one of the owners of Mr. Todd's Gymnastics, took the stand again for a second time. During her testimony, she stated she had known Chris for over a decade and was confident that the CPS authorities investigating the couple could handle the situation appropriately, and if there were any findings, Chris's employment would be terminated. She spoke about the couple and how she watched their children grow up because they also attended classes at the gym. Despite Nikki no longer working there after 2011, she did still see her frequently. The bruises she witnessed on Nikki were not anything concerning to her, because in their line of work, gymnastics, tumbles and falls are common, and so are bruises. Hart wished that if Chris was abusing Nikki, that she would have felt comfortable coming to her and telling her, especially since Hart knew Nikki before she met Chris. She considered herself a close friend of the couple's and was quite shocked when the allegations of abuse surfaced because she never witnessed any such behavior. Hart recalls the abusive relationship that Nikki told her that she was in with a former boyfriend of hers who also had the same name, Chris. She felt that since Nikki was comfortable disclosing this to her in the past, how come she didn't come to her again when Chris Grover allegedly began abusing her? 
A forensic psychologist who evaluated Nikki for the prosecution said that he found no evidence that confirmed that Nikki was physically or sexually abused by Chris, as she claimed she was. Stuart Kirchner, an expert witness for the prosecution, continued to state that there is no one-size-fits-all profile for an abuser, but there are some common characteristic traits that they will display. In his professional opinion, Chris did not display any of those behaviors, and he said, quote, I saw absolutely no indication that he was possessive, that he monitored her whereabouts, or that he exercised control over her life in any shape or form, end quote. In his assessment of Nikki, he found that she was very unreliable in her recollection of events and that she gives different stories to different people. On cross-examination, the defense asked Kirchner if he looked into the allegations that Chris sexually abused Nikki, including taking and uploading nude photos of her to a pornography site without her permission or knowledge. His response was there was no clear indication that Chris forced her to take those pictures nor was there proof that the photos were consensual by either party. Kirchner stated that although there were clear signs of physical injuries on Nikki, there was no way to know who inflicted those wounds, and in his expert opinion, Chris did not display the characteristics of what an abuser typically does. He claims that in his evaluation of the couple, he found that Nikki was blaming everything on Chris, but nothing was adding up. His evaluation consisted of four interviews with Nikki and several with friends and family. He also reviewed the text and emails that the couple exchanged and looked over medical records and reports. He did not conduct any psychological testing on the defendant because according to him, there are very few tests that have norms for people awaiting trial who have a vested interest in how their test results will affect their legal case. Some parts of his valuations were based on assumptions, and all of it is objective, just like it is with the defense's forensic psychologist. The jury was shown several photographs depicting abuse that Nikki suffered. One such photo was of Chris holding Nikki in a headlock, a chokehold-type move. Kirchner stated that the picture isn't something that an abusive man would allow someone to take because it could potentially expose him. So the content of the picture could instead be more of a playful pose. The defense asked him if he could tell if Chris was aware that the picture was being taken. He responded with no, because he's not looking at the camera, so it's not clear if he knew the picture was taken or not. Kirchner then spoke about the time when Nikki moved in with the police officer and his family back in 2011 or 12. She was dating Chris at the time, and he was aware that she was living with the couple and their children, but he wasn't aware of the sexual relationship that Nikki began to form with the officer shortly after moving in. He stated that an abuser would not allow their victim to leave and live with another family. They lose control of the victim, so that is why it is not typical to see an abuser okay with the situation that she was in. After three weeks of testimony from expert witnesses, family, friends, and co-workers of the couple, the trial came to an end. Prosecutor Shauna Krauss started off by stating that the investigation launched by Child Protective Services that were looking into the allegations of abuse that Nikki supposedly suffered at the hands of Chris were the catalysts to the murder. The morning the CPS agency arrived at the couple's apartment was the moment Nikki knew her gig was up. She feared that the agency would get to the bottom of her years of allegations and find nothing but lies and deception. Those lies would ultimately cost her the custody of her children, 
and what she was willing to kill for. She shot Chris in the head while he was sleeping on the couch, completely unaware of his impending doom and totally unable to defend himself. The abuse allegations she claimed were all fabricated by the defendant in order for her to get away with murder. She reminded the jury that Chris was not on trial here and that Nikki's actions were deliberate and unjustified. If she was being abused as she claims, she had the opportunity to leave him and she knew the resources available to her if she did. Her actions in the relationship are inconsistent with a person who is being abused and many of her stories make no sense. She was involved in a consensual sexual relationship with a now retired police officer while she was still dating Chris. She made the major decisions around the house and berated Chris with text messages in August, one month prior to his death, calling him stupid and a man-child and even stating he had something mentally wrong with him. Nothing Nikki claims is credible. If one thing she says makes no sense, I urge you to challenge everything, she stressed to the jury. If Chris was awake when Nikki pressed the barrel of the gun against his head, he would have fought for his life. He wanted to be around for his kids. Instead, his body was found in the same position he was shot in, the same position he was in when he was asleep on the couch. He concluded by stating even if Chris had been responsible for any of the injuries Nikki suffered, it still would not justify her pulling the trigger and ending his life in the manner she did. She urged the jury to hold Nikki accountable for her actions. Defense attorney John Ingracia's closing argument was over two hours long. He began by saying that Nikki ultimately chose her life over death that night. Her actions in shooting Chris were justified, and she had reasonable belief that Chris was going to end her life that night if she didn't take his first. He reminded the jury that although they were not able to prove that Chris inflicted those injuries on Nikki, he didn't seem all too concerned about her injuries either. Would a man who is not abusing his wife turn a blind eye to her if she had visible wounds? This is because Chris was the abuser, Ingracia said. He knew better than anybody just how dangerous he was. Ingracia recalled the various injuries Nikki suffered at the hands of Chris, stating she was raped repeatedly, choked with a bathrobe belt, and burned with a hot spoon while she was pregnant with the couple's child. We marched witness after witness after witness who testified to the abuse that Nikki suffered with such excruciating pain in detail. One could only describe the acts as evil and sadistic torture. Those web searches that were conducted on Chris's phone the evening of the shooting, those were not done by Nikki. There is no way to prove it, and they were deleted. If the defendant was trying to frame Chris, why would she have deleted those searches? One of those searches, the one that was for part of brain to shoot and suicide, was also found on Chris's search history from July of 2017. He also pointed out that the text Nikki sent to a friend, stating that she was still there because she didn't find a way to kill him yet and not get caught, was in humor. Judge McLaughlin gave instructions to the jury that were specifically tailored to Nikki's case. The prosecution is required to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the act of Nikki shooting and killing Chris was not justified. He said, quote, you have heard testimony that Christopher Grover engaged in violent acts. Normally, the law does not permit such testimony. The reason is that every person, regardless of the person's relative worth to the community, had the right to live undisturbed by an unlawful assault, end quote.
In his instructions, he also stated that in order for them to determine whether Nikki did reasonably believe her actions that evening, the shooting of Chris, was necessary to defend herself from what she reasonably believed to be imminent danger she was in. They can also consider whether they believe Nikki was aware of Chris's engagement in violent acts, and if so, to what extent. Was it this knowledge that contributed to Nikki's reasonable belief that Chris was going to kill her, and that is why she had to use deadly force? He stated that Nikki would not be justified in using such force if she knew she could get to safety without resorting to using deadly force by retreating, except if she was in her own home, which she was and was not the initial aggressor, the law states. The jury is still in deliberations, and it's been three days. The media reports that the jury spent the day on the first day of deliberations reviewing evidence that they have asked to see, and the specific pieces are crime scene photos, the interview Nikki had with the police at the station, and web search records and several pictures of Nikki's injuries. On Friday, April 12th, the jury found Nikki guilty of second-degree murder. She faces the maximum penalty of 25 years to life in prison. Her sentencing is set for May 20th. Sobs and screams, a mixture of mourning and celebrating, filled the courtroom. Elizabeth Clifton, the supporter of Nikki, said to journalists, quote, I just wanted to say that we're heartbroken and devastated and we're thinking of Nikki's two children who will go to sleep without their mother, end quote. Gail Grover, the mother of Chris, simply said, quote, justice served, end quote. She held a necklace that contains Chris's ashes. This will conclude the episode. Thank you all so much for listening, and if you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a comment.